Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of the Awake 58 podcast. Today we're joined by a very special guest, Mike Krause. Mike currently serves as a higher ed consultant based out of Nashville, Tennessee. Prior to this role, he was the head of the Tennessee Higher Ed Commission, and before that he served in a variety of roles in state government. In Tennessee, he helped lead their efforts around attainment and adult learners, two topics that are very relevant for North Carolina today. Mike also served in the Army and came to college as an adult learner himself. We thank him for sharing his personal stories and experiences, as well as giving us tips for how North Carolina might move forward in the space. Mike, it's great to be with you. Uh, for those who don't know you, would you mind sharing a little bit of your backstory and a little bit of the sort of your career art? Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for having me on. Um, so I currently am in private practice working in higher education consulting. But prior to that, served for, you know, in a variety of roles, kind of did the journeyman path through state government that culminated in serving for four and a half years as the state higher education chief in Tennessee. Uh, before that role, though, I held, you know, what for me was probably the pinnacle and the highest honor, which was being able to work with Governor Bill Haslam on establishing the nation's first free community college program, which was Tennessee Promise. And, you know, that opportunity, and I know that everyone in North Carolina can relate, you know, we're not always used to leading in the good things in the South. And establishing Tennessee Promise was a great opportunity to lead with one of the good things uh, nationally. Uh, and prior to that, you know, kind of held a variety of roles within state government in the higher ed space, uh, but foundationally served in the U.S. Army for six years. I actually entered the Army after high school. I did not go after college as an officer. I enlisted. Uh, and so when I did go to college after my time in the Army, uh, was an adult learner myself. And there's no doubt that informs some of the perspective I try to bring to higher education and, you know, specifically some of the things that we're working on in North Carolina. Let's jump to a more recent uh, event and then we'll we'll sort of go back to Tennessee Promise. So I know one of your final roles in Tennessee um, prior to moving to private practice was sort of assisting on all of the state's higher education efforts relative to COVID-19. Certainly, as you consult and as you work with colleges here in North Carolina and beyond, you know, COVID-19 continues to impact us all. Um, maybe share a few of your takeaways, both from that experience at Tennessee as you all transition to, to kind of serving higher ed during COVID-19, but particularly as you look ahead, like how do you think this pandemic is going to continue to impact our higher ed institutions? That's a great question. Um, I look to a guy named Michael Crow a lot, who's the president of Arizona State University and kind of considered one of the big disruptor disruptors in higher education. And I heard a talk from him in the fall of 2019, which, you know, we all think now as uh, the before uh, prior to COVID-19. And he gave this really great set of remarks on the future of higher education and the disruptions that he saw coming. And then lo and behold, six to eight months later, we find ourselves in the middle of the most significant higher education disruption accelerant is kind of what I've come to think of it as. I think higher education was going to naturally get to a disrupted place really because we've got to be clear eyed that higher education has not been producing what most employers need. Um, and if ever we needed evidence of that, Amazon invested hundreds of millions of dollars in starting their own college, right? Their own internal learning program. 
that to me was a big shot across the bow of higher ed. And I think, again, we would have gotten there anyway. The Southern New Hampshire's and Western governors of the world, both of whom I'm a big fan of, they quickly realized higher education was delivering its product on higher education's terms and likely for the worst reason ever, which is it's the way we'd always done it. COVID-19, I think, has displaced that. I think that, first off, you can't talk about COVID-19 and higher education without just giving tremendous credit to faculty members and campus leaders. When I was in the state higher education chief role during COVID-19, I always tried to be mindful. Don't get me wrong. It was stressful at the state level. And we were working through things we never imagined ourselves working through. But I always tried to remind myself, I wasn't the faculty member having to adapt connected learning in an online modality the way they had to all of a sudden, right? So picture, you know, the engineering faculty member who's suddenly trying to teach differential equations online, which I have not taken differential equations. In fact, I structured my college degree to avoid math, but I don't think differential equations online uh, is what any professor or student imagined. But we did it. And on the other end, you know, I think about, you know, remedial developmental studies continue to be a huge hurdle. And I have no shame in admitting I had to take remedial math. Uh, remedial math, I'd been out of school for six years in the Army. Remedial math statistically had a really good chance of taking me out and kind of ending my college journey. Thankfully, it didn't. But I think a lot about our remedial developmental professors who had to adapt teaching a group of students who, you know, obviously you're challenged because you're in that class. I went into remedial math because I had lost some of my math acuity. I just think it's really important to take the moment, and I try to do it often, to remember, like, our faculty went above and beyond. And I know that's a platitude, but there's no other way to say it. Our presidents did the same thing. With that in mind, though, I'm hoping that we really booked some of these lessons for the future. So we had a lot of artificial barriers in place. Well, you can't teach that online. I'd say we probably put that one to rest. Is it optimal all the time? No, but I do think we learned a pretty powerful lesson that you can teach most things online when you have to. Allied to that, I worry a lot about working students because I worked when I was in college. And, you know, a student two years ago whose work schedule changed probably would have been told by their college, well, you know, if your work schedule's changed and you're going to have to miss class, we probably just need to take a W and come back next semester. I hope we learned that's not true anymore, right? I hope we learned that there's some toggling available. And the, the peril, if we didn't learn that, the peril that COVID-19 has introduced is our students saw it, though. Our students saw that we did have these capabilities. And so I just think we have a lot of opportunity here to use the lessons of COVID-19 to make higher education look much more flexible and agile to what students need. And if we don't, I, I think higher education has a real problem. I think the bachelor's degree will be challenged uh, as a unit of learning because employers are more interested in tangible skills at this point, I'd say, than an actual, you know, the credential itself. They're worried about the learning embedded within the credential, not the, the diploma. So to take a step back, I mean, uh, you know, 
obviously I think COVID-19 will impact and, and has impacted attainment rates and, and college going rates, et cetera, et cetera. But prior to COVID-19, Tennessee was certainly being lauded for your efforts around attainment. At a top level, and we'll drill down on some of these as the conversation goes, but what are some of your key takeaways from Tennessee's work? And, and I guess more specifically, given our emphasis around adult learners, um, what did your state learn as you aim to reconnect with them? First, we learned the importance of having a statewide agenda. Um, every college is different. Every college campus's local surroundings are different. At the same time, it really mattered that our governor stood up and said, this is what we're about. We're about increasing attainment. Uh, I think it really mattered that our state stood up with Tennessee Reconnect and said, adult learners are important to us. And I think in the absence of that, some college campuses will pursue it because it makes sense to their region. Other college campuses probably won't pursue it. And so I look back on that statewide agenda as being really important. The second thing that was pivotal was the fact we were willing to make the statement that any adult could go to college tuition free. Uh, that's probably the single most important thing. The message itself of you need to go back to college will always resonate with adult learners, but it's a lot different if the message is you need to go back to college and it's free. And we were able to do that in Tennessee, I would argue for a pretty modest amount of money, you know, probably in the mid 20 million range, 25 to $28 million. You know, the, the smallest state budget in America is Delaware. I think it's rolling around three and a half billion. So when you look at it, that scope and scale or a state like Tennessee or North Carolina, whose budgets are, you know, above 40 billion, you know, 25 million felt like a pretty solid investment for the ROI you're going to get on, in our case, you know, tens of thousands of adults going back to college, doing so tuition free and then being able to go into the workforce with a fundamentally different earning capacity. So I think we just had the right overall message, which in and of itself does matter. But then the second thing was more tactical, which was, no, we're going to make this tuition free. And then the final piece, which we'll probably talk about in a moment, but the final piece was really important, which was making sure that when adults got to campus, there were appropriate supports. One of the things you said earlier was, you know, referencing your experience as an adult learner, and, and I've heard this story from you a couple of times now, but could you tell us a little bit about how it impacted your prism um, as you think about the work in post-secondary? And, and I think, you know, you told a story about uh, what it was like to arrive on campus for the first time, right? And, and what it's like for other students to arrive on campus for the first time. So maybe tell us a little bit about how that's impacted your, your thought process, and then we can sort of dive deeper onto some of your takeaways and, and recommendations. Sure. Um, you know, the hardest thing I ever did in the Army was get out. You know, the military does a really incredible job of kind of becoming a, a snow globe that you live within. And so it was really scary to get out. And it was really jarring to go from, in my case, you know, a 23-year-old sergeant to a, a college student. So one year, I was surrounded by students who were five years younger than me who did not have the life experience I had. That in and of itself is jarring. Second, the structures, even at a college, I went, I was fortunate to go to a university that was right beside uh, the place I was stationed, Fort Campbell, Kentucky. So I went to Austin P State University, very similar dynamic in place with many of the colleges around Fort Bragg. You know, these, this college I went to was leaning ahead on how to help adult learners. And it was still 
much more challenging to pursue the logistics of college in the end than it was academics. The structures that were built were built for 18 year olds that didn't work. The advising services closed at 430, right? The course structures are built for somebody that is always going to take five, five courses, four to five courses, right? And that's just not realistic for some adults. And so I found myself, even at an adult learner friendly institution, consistently sparring with structures as much as I did academics. So what I took away from that is, first off, you know, you ask why? Well, the reason is um, higher education administrators typically weren't adult learners, and that's just the truth. Higher education administrators typically followed a very staid path, a good path, but a very defined path from college to graduate school in which they got a doctorate. They then were a professor. They were then a dean or a department head, then a dean, then a provost, and then a president, right? And the provost, deans, and department heads you encounter in between presidents are on the same path. So you really can't fault higher education because it has been an industrial complex where most people have similar experiences. There are exceptions, should always note that. But generally the system is run by leaders who did not have a non-traditional approach. And so in their defense, it's really hard to see it any differently. What I try to bring to my own thoughts about adult learners is an understanding that when an adult has made the decision to cross over and go to college, if we can just get them through like the first week, their retention rates are through the roof. Adult learners succeed once they've made the decision across the Rubicon at much higher rates than non-traditional than traditional students, rather, in my experience. But there's a really risky week to month to first semester in there that we've got to be sensitive to. And that sensitivity does have to do with academics. I don't want to minimize that at all, but you won't even get the adult learner to the academic place, in my opinion, unless we make sure that the onboarding into the college is built for a working parent, is built for someone who didn't succeed in college the first time. So they're already having to overcome some inner resistance. We've just got to build an on-ramp that I think is is fundamentally different than most of what public uh, and traditional private higher education has been. And that, that's where I think we, we could learn from the Southern New Hampshire's of the world, the Western governors of the world. So let's just say it out loud. I mean, you know, we've, we certainly know the enroll, what the enrollment trends look like. My guess is, and, and not my guess, my, all the projections show these enrollment trends aren't turning around. So we know that that's one of the fundamental reasons why adult learners are going to matter, just from a pure business case for a college. But what are some of the other sort of, I guess, fundamental principles for why adult learners should matter, will matter, do matter to community colleges and other post-secondary institutions as we move forward? Uh, one, because I think that all of higher education and, and, and you know our community college and technical college partners are already there. But even in the university space, we're going to face continuing requests from the workforce sector that, hey, we need these specifically trained people to do these specific things. And the reality is a lot of that's going to come from adult learners that need to retrain. That's the imperative that I'm probably most concerned about. I think that during the last year of COVID, year and a half now, we've had a lot of adults who they've had the worst year of their lives, right? And maybe they found out the job that they thought would get them through retirement 
is one, maybe they lost the job during the pandemic. Now maybe they're finding that job has fundamentally changed and their skills haven't kept pace. But I think colleges have to be mindful of the fact of the employer workforce business community is, is going to be a more central voice. And in academia, I think so much of the view has been on generating research and being the academic voice in society, which it should still do. And I hope no one hears me saying otherwise, but we do need to adapt to being a workforce engine. Otherwise, again, the workforce will just create their own colleges. And then we have an existential threat, I think, to a lot of institutions, business and their ability to remain open. So adapting to adult learners, in my mind, really the imperative becomes ensuring we have the right workforce, which zoom out. That's always about prosperity, right? That's always about making sure I mean, we can zoom out really far. We can say that a state's ability to recruit a strong workforce leads to their ability to have a revenue base that funds public higher education. And those things are all intertwined. But at the core of it, I would tell a college president if maybe they were skeptical. I doubt there are a few anymore that are. But if they were, I would say there's no way you're going to be able to build a workforce pipeline that's being asked of you with just traditional students. It's not mathematically possible. And let's pivot to adult learners. Let's build a pipeline that gets them through trained and in a good job that pays a living wage. And let's also be okay with the fact if that pathway doesn't include a degree, what if it includes, you know, a micro credential in route? Back in May, you and I were gathered together with about 12, 14 community college presidents from here in North Carolina. I know you offered them sort of a, a set of questions uh, for as post-secondary leaders to consider as they're thinking about, is their college set up for adult learners? For the benefit of everyone who wasn't there, you know, what are those questions that you sort of think are fundamental for colleges as they begin to consider adult learners? So first and foremost, um, are my support services available after hours and on weekends? And that to me is the single biggest indicator to an adult that this institution is built for them. Second, are we able to import prior learning? And this is one I'm passionate about. Uh, you know, no one argues anymore. The, the, the only place where learning takes place is not just in a campus or in a classroom. We have great employer experiences. We have obviously, I think, very high quality military training. We have high quality industry training. So I, I asked those presidents, are you configured to import prior learning assessment? Because if you are, that student then shows up and it's like, hey, here's your 15 credit hours for your work you've done as a police officer. And that's a big deal. That's a big accelerant. It's a, I think, tangible accelerant that will help the student graduate more quickly. But really what it is, is a psychological accelerant like, oh, OK, I've got advanced standing. I also asked this question, which I think is really important. Do your faculty have professional development around how to treat, how to teach adults? There are different learning styles here. There are different approaches that need to be taken with adults. And I try to be, again, uh, while I am an adjunct faculty member now, I'm not a full-time faculty member. And so I always try to remind myself what I don't know because I'm not a faculty member. What I do know though, is it's not fair to ask our faculty to teach an ever-changing group of students and not equip them. And so I, I posed that day to those presidents and continue to pose the question, have we trained our faculty on how to teach these adult learners? Have we equipped them with, when an adult learner comes in the classroom, 
there may be a set of experiences that actually aren't academic that need to be addressed. Do our faculty all know how to refer somebody who may be food insecure? I hope they do. I hope they, I hope they know that for our traditional students as well who are undergoing those kinds of challenges. But I think faculty professional development is a missed uh, piece of this that is very important because the reality, and I said this to those presidents at the time, let's say you have somebody on your campus in charge of adult learners, right? Which I highly recommend because if nobody's in charge, it generally doesn't get done. But that adult learner czar may face 10 adult learners a day, right? And maybe they're very fluent on how to serve adult learners. But if that person on the front line, the faculty member isn't equipped to serve adult learners, then we've got a real, I think we've got a real issue because you can have the best adult learner subject matter expert working for the, the provost, but at the end of the day, our faculty are the front lines. And so I think we've got to equip them to succeed. So tell me a little bit, I mean, let's circle back and just say, what would a, in your mind, an adult learner czar look like? I mean, what, like, what is, what is their day-to-day, -day? I mean, living and breathing adult learners and then serving as the air traffic controller or? Yeah, that's, that's, I think that's really close. I think if we look at the life cycle of a student as the model, right? So first there's, you know, recruitment of students and enrollment management and adult learners are, would be deeply involved in that. And they would start with the adult learners the institution has already served who haven't graduated. That's the first thing I would put an adult learner coordinator on. Hey, how many students are within X amount of credit hours and have dropped out? Who are they? Well, we know who they are. Let's contact them. Let's hold some adult learner friendly events. Moving out of that life cycle, then you have the advising and registration phase. And I think what an adult learner point of contact at a campus does is make sure uh, one very important thing, have we minimized the choices? Because higher education, in our pursuit to try to serve broadly, which I love, but we often present students with a thousand choices rather than five really good choices. And there's no doubt, um, I believe choice and time are the enemy of graduation in higher education. And I think an adult learner czar in that space helps ensure, you know, for a fact that Mike is coming with 30 credit hours in X field. Great. How do we go to them proactively and say, hey, you have two or three different options to complete in the next 18 months. Here's what they look like. Instead, what we do now is we present a Tetris game of a registration schedule and we say, yeah, put this together and, you know, assemble your courses. Maybe you meet with an advisor to try to follow your course map. Certainly hope you do. But I think an adult learner coordinator at the campus level can, can serve as a powerful conduit to say, yes, we have relied on adults to come to us once they've applied. What if we went to them? And what if we went to them and said, hey, here's your path to a degree? And then the final thing I think they do, um, this is an equity problem in my mind. It's one, uh, it's an equity problem across income. It's an equity problem across demographics that we need to help a lot of adults enhance their skills and be able to earn uh, a higher wage to support their family. I think having that adult learner voice at the table of leadership at colleges matters, as we, we kind of touched on a moment ago, just to provide that perspective and, and not to get too Pollyanna about it, but most people that get into higher education are altruists and they believe, I believe, 
that higher education as a societal good is here to help people have a better life, raise their family with more financial security. I think that that adult learner voice being at the table to just constantly remind, hey, not everybody we serve is 18. Why well, you can always refine some system at a college, I think, to better serve adults, to better serve low income students, to better serve students of color, all of the populations that historically haven't been well served by higher education benefits from somebody that's viewing everything on that college campus through that prism of closing that gap. And I, I hope more campuses will consider doing this in the adult learner space. So one of the things that you touched a little bit on in, in Tennessee and, and from a free college standpoint, a messaging standpoint, but I know you've, you've beaten this drum a lot over the last couple of years is that one of the, your learnings, I think in Tennessee was that financial aid messages as they stand now are largely ineffective. Um, I, I shouldn't say largely, like not painting a Brad brush, but are often ineffective. <laughs> um, how so? And then I guess, you know, what messaging would you recommend colleges consider? I mean, certainly in North Carolina, you know, we have the long leaf commitment and other assets, uh, you know, other federal dollars are being deployed to make college tuition free. And it doesn't seem to actually be moving the needle a whole lot this fall. I'm not saying it, it won't as time goes on. Uh, certainly in other states, people are experimenting with using federal funds to try to recruit folks and make deploy additional financial aid. But, you know, what would your, I guess, takeaways be from Tennessee, uh, your learnings in Tennessee around messaging and, and what is effective or ineffective? Simple is effective. Current structure is ineffective. So the current structure relies on student completing a FAFSA, which is much simplified thanks to our senator that we're very proud of, US, former U.S. Senator Lamar Alexander's work around FAFSA simplification. But we're still at a place where our offer to students is, hey, if you fill out this form, we'll see what happens. And that's not an effective message for someone that already maybe has doubts about coming in the first place. What we did in Tennessee is we made a bet that the number of adults willing to come back who would essentially be full Pell and uh, if the Pell Grants current award, any community college in North Carolina or Tennessee is free because of the Pell Grant. The tuition is free, and that's an important detail. We made a bet that enough students would come back who were fully Pell eligible that it would be free. Their tuition would be free, and the simplicity of that message would also draw in the student who maybe had a little bit of the donut hole, right? They had $1,000 that would keep them they weren't going to get full Pell, but they were going to get, say, $3,000. So they'd need to figure out a way to find $1,000. Uh, in my experience, telling an adult learner they need to find $1,000, we might as well tell them they need to find a million dollars. They're not that that is not a winning message. So the I think the beauty and simplicity of Tennessee Reconnect is that it's a last dollar approach that says, if you need aid, we will close the gap. In doing so, what you really are able to do then is just have a clean message. It's free. Every asterisk you put behind, it's free. I think you lose students. And we were just comfortable with not putting many asterisks behind it. We were comfortable with saying, you can go tuition free. And you know, a lot of adults took us up on that offer. 17,000 adults took us up in that offer. And we had this massive spike in adult enrollment. And it was really because that financial aid message had been boiled down to the lowest common denominator. Do you have to go that full degree we went to? You know, maybe not, but I think that in all the data I've seen, cost remains the largest hurdle in most adults' mind. Followed closely, by the way, by time, family commitments, and work, right? 
which are harder to address. But the average adult that's going to come to one of our colleges looking to upskill is going to be full Pell. And so I think we've got to find a better way to message that if we want to address the first thing in their mind, which is how am I going to pay for this? When the reality is, you know, most of them are going to paying for the tuition won't be the problem, right? Because the way that they fall right now within the Pell scoring, they're going to receive full financial aid. They're going to be able to pay tuition and fees. They're probably going to get a balance check back to happen with books. The challenge there becomes, I think a lot of times people become uncomfortable with say, well, yeah, but that won't be true for this student. That won't be true for this student. And so they end up talking themselves out of a clear message, right? And my advice is take the clear message. The students who this won't directly be the one-to-one -one help for, that's why we have advisors to help them work through that situation. But we won't get the chance to advise those students if our front end message is so complex that they say, I, I'm never going to be able to make that work. Does that make sense? I know it's a, it's a different way to approach financial aid because our financial aid programs for 50 years were really based around two metrics, need and merit. And what we're talking about is less about the structure of financial aid and more about how we tell people what's already out there. But I, I think that our our situation proved it's it's pretty powerful and there's situations like that underway in North Carolina right now. One of the things that you and your friend Kenyatta and I and some others have talked about in recent weeks and months and different convenings is that all the financial aid support in the world doesn't matter without other supports and other efforts. Um, you know, what community-based support should communities and colleges be considering at this point in time, you know, as we look out, whether that requires policy shifts or changes or whether it just means getting creative with deployment of federal funds or whether it means trying to build alliances and connections with area nonprofits and agencies? And this is the where the free college discussion gets it wrong often uh, and where people focus just on tuition. And that's why I probably nuanced my last statements a moment ago so heavily because tuition free, as Dr. Lovett has said, uh, isn't the only thing. So I think about this first, and I like what you referenced, Nation. There, there are a lot of existing programs. We just haven't leveraged well. Uh, I think of the Workforce Investment Opportunity Act, WIOA, which is administered through most states, Department of Labor or Employment Security. And WIOA provides an array of what we call supportive costs, gas cards, bus passes, things like that, that help a student progress through certain training programs. I think WIOA is a great opportunity to try to link up when a college finds themselves. And again, I want to kind of give credit to the frontline people at colleges who, I mean, every student that comes in prevents, presents a unique situation to them, but they maybe don't always know about all of the resources that are out there. If I had a student that came to me that was food insecure, man, wouldn't it be really great if in addition to the food pantry at the college, I also was linking them up with the State Department of Human Services so that they were able to seek whatever benefits might be available under TANF or SNAP. I don't know right now that the problem is absence of benefits. I just don't think the benefits are aligned and presented to students holistically. Uh, my pie in the sky idea is that, especially at community and technical colleges, or honestly, at any college serving over 40% Pell-eligible students, I mean, why wouldn't you have the State Department of Employment Security and Social Services there, right? Why wouldn't they be located the same place the college is? I think that has a really powerful opportunity to leverage what's already out there. What isn't out there we need to think about is books and tools. 
So these technical programs have a high cost due to the tools often. A nursing student, which I, you know, it's funny that the licensed practical nurse, um, I, I like, you know, stories of the demise of the LPN were greatly exaggerated in the early 2000s. In the early 2000s, it was, oh, all the LPNs are going to need to become RNs. That's not true. We need LPNs in the long-term care setting, and this is a good path in many areas to a great wage and benefits. But LPNs show up on day one with a whole lot of costs that aren't tuition around equipment and other associated training fees. That one we got to figure out for the programs that just have a particularly high cost, whether it's a welding student with tools or an LPN student with their front end costs. And I don't have a good answer because I don't think anybody does right now. What I'd love to see in the community space that you referenced. So we're pretty blessed in North Carolina with an incredible philanthropic community. But I think oftentimes, and this is true in Tennessee, presidents haven't been able to be in the room with the philanthropies to say, hey, this is what we need this year, and then be able to adapt moving forward in a given year based on student enrollment numbers, based on particular program costs. There, there have been no shortage of people in Tennessee, just to use our state as an example, who were willing to give. They just didn't have good information about where their investment could help the most people. And that's on, I think, both higher education and philanthropy, to have the right conversation that is not existential. It's very tactical. I have 21 students coming in the LPN program this fall that are Pell eligible, and I'm going to need help with their training and equipment. Can you help? I, I think that that's the opportunity for us to really get past a place where someone says, well, I got enough Pell Grant for tuition, but I couldn't do the program because I couldn't afford the books or equipment. One of the things that I'm curious about, you know, you're now doing a fair amount of work in North Carolina with these five pilot colleges, and, and some people have heard about this work and some people haven't at this juncture. And what are some of the things that you're seeing in North Carolina as these colleges and as philanthropies begin to focus on adult learners? I know it's early days, but I think it'd be great for folks to hear a little bit of a, a sense of how it's going. Absolutely. I mean, first and foremost, I believe wholeheartedly North Carolina is poised to do something no other state's doing. There is you know, you always, sometimes it's better to be lucky than good, right? You've got to have a lot of things aligned. And we did in Tennessee at one time. In North Carolina right now, there are a lot of things aligned. There is state leadership. There is nonprofit leadership through a My Future NC. There is advocacy through My Future NC. There's the research. And uh, I like to think of it as, you know, research and encouragement arm that is the Belk Center at NC State that Dr. Jager leads. And then, yes, there is the John M. Belk Endowment, which has, I think, positioned itself to be a voice around adult learners that I don't see anywhere else in the nation. And I'm working nationwide right now. The thing I've seen that's been the most encouraging has been leadership matters and the presidents we've worked with in this group and vice presidents and directors all the way throughout the hierarchy of each institution you know, the coolest thing about this work is I've been able to visit every institution, right? And been able to really get to know, hey, how can we help you with those presidents? And at every level, you've just got really passionate, good people. And I know that sounds, you know, kind of like a thin thing when you say, oh, they're good people, but it, it really matters because higher education is a human affair. And I've been blown away by it. I've been blown away by the fact we're operating, you know, in Fayetteville, 
and we're operating in Vance Granville and we're operating at Blue Ridge. We're operating in Pitt. We're operating in Durham. We have really all the very different diverse areas of the old North state included. And these colleges are just absolutely sprinting in a way that I don't think anyone in America is right now in adult learners. The leadership piece is, is the thing that has just blown me away though. A bunch of passionate leaders at every level within the college who don't let the conversation ever lose sight of this is about the adult learner that will show up here. And, you know, they're a working mom and their ability to get this degree will likely have a generational effect. So, you know, you've given a ton of, I think, advice and recommendations to leaders and, and folks across the community college and post-secondary space to think about over the course of this conversation. So maybe we can synthesize it down a little bit. You know, if, if I'm sitting there as a provost or a VP or a community college president today and came in and said, look, what are the three to five things I need to get started on right now from an adult learner standpoint? What, what would that list look like from your perspective? I'd walk into the institutional research office and say, I need a report of everybody that's over the age of 24 right now enrolled at the college. And I would need it sorted by program. I would need it sorted by Pell. I would need it sorted by the courses they're taking. Then my second step is once we had an appropriate data overview is sitting down and looking at each of these students' current propensity to succeed, which is not hard to do. Every institutional research office at every campus should know how to do that, to say, hey, they've got some risk factors here. I would then, three, once I've established the risk factors, triage those students into risk categories. And the most high risk, we would deploy the interventions, uh, which could be academic, they could be logistical. That's the stop the bleeding approach in the current semester, right? What I hope that informs then is the next step, which is, okay, let's get strategic about next semester, which is the exact same data pool, the exact same stratification, but then meeting with the deans and department heads with a particular focus on my student affairs department to say, hey, what should we do? And again, faculty are so important here because they know. Faculty are the ones facing these students. Faculty are the ones that normally are the front end of the heartbreaking stories. I think I would bring them in. I think I'd most importantly bring in some actual adult students to serve in an advisory capacity. And before you know it, you get that group around a table and you've got an advisory council on adult learners that then serves as a litmus test on other policy measures that can be taken. That's what I would do if I were a vice president today. If you were a policymaker, I know this is always dangerous, sitting here in North Carolina, uh, you know, and I know you've had conversations with some of them and they're thinking, what could the state do for adult learners? Are there any things that you might recommend uh, that some creative policymakers begin to think about or consider? I would start with financial aid. I'd start by assessing, are my current state financial aid resources all merit-based? Merit has a role in financial aid, and there are financial aid scholars much more learned than me. Uh, but I do think that merit took on, at some point, a disproportionate role within financial aid policy. And that's an equity issue, too. It's an issue that we need to look hard at. How do we help students find a way through state means to get through college other than what they did on the ACT or their high school GPA? Second, I'll go back to where we started, which is having some state goal, which thank goodness in North Carolina, uh, there is a state attainment goal. And that matters, right? 
because in the absence of guidance, colleges are allowed to say, or, or so rather in the absence of guidance, colleges know, okay, here's our goal. We're working to get to 60%. And so they know that they have their individual strategies that they can deploy. The final thing I think I do, um, this is a tall order, but it's important. Right now, and this is true for all states, not just North Carolina, most states, because we, we did fix this in Tennessee. If I show up to a college in Western North Carolina with a certain degree of credit from the military, there's no guarantee that college is going to respond the same way they would if I showed up to a college in Eastern North Carolina. I think, and that's not just about the military, that ultimately becomes about prior learning assessment generally. At the state level, yes, I would convene a group to look at the top employed fields we have for adults and to come up with some uniform response at campuses. Now, that should be faculty driven and faculty led, completely believe that, but it should happen because I don't have a good explanation to a student as to why they go to X college and they've been in military police and they're gonna get 15 credit hours, but they go to another college and they're only gonna get nine. And I think that that statewide systematic approach is a very appropriate approach in the prior learning assessment space. You know, I, may we never bring in somebody that has had a career in retail or managing restaurants again and not give them zero credit hours, because that's not true. If you've been the manager of a restaurant, you are experienced in business practices, you're experienced in some degree of accounting, you're experienced in human resources management. We have to find a way to assess that appropriately, no doubt about it, within the bounds of accreditation, but people have. It's out there. And I think the state has a very appropriate role to set that table and say it's our expectation that within the bounds of accreditation, there will be a uniform response to prior learning assessment within the state. This has been super helpful. I'm going to close with two, uh, two fun questions. One is I'm part of a, a fellowship here in North Carolina, post-secondary folks that MCs help support. And we're going to be spending a couple of days in Memphis in January. So anyone who knows me knows I love food. So where should I, where should I check out food wise? So this is going to need to be another podcast. Um, <laughs> Memphis is one of my favorite cities in the world. It's just, it's a, it's a special place. I would do a couple different things. First, I would go to breakfast at Gibson's Donuts. Uh, you have to do that. Second, I would probably go to Topps Barbecue for lunch. Uh, Memphis, on a North Carolina podcast, I don't want to get into the barbecue wars. I'm just going to leave it with you to say that Topps Barbecue is, is a destination. And then I probably for dinner would hit Gus's. Um, that's a Memphis spot that everybody is familiar with. Um, if you're looking for something really nice, I told you this was going to go sideways. There's a great place called Paulette's. And then finally, there's a local Memphis. Uh, it's not a chain because it's only in Memphis, but there's a great burger to be had at Huey's. Finally, no mention of Memphis culinary delights is complete without Ernestine and Hazel's. Ernestine and Hazel's is a dive bar uh, not far from Beale Street. You don't know when it opens or closes. It has no hours. This is a true story. You kind of find out if they're open when you go there, but they're very well known for a soul burger. And yeah, as you can tell, you came to the right guy for this one, for that question. I will say the one meal I've had in Memphis was at Gus's and we ordered, I think, two or three of the whole chicken trays and it was a delight. Um, so final, uh, final question, which you knew was coming because you 
direct message me on Twitter about, about this podcast in relation to a tweet I sent. Um, favorite West Wing quote or two, if you want to want to end on a high note. Mm, well, again, we should just have a podcast of West Wing quotes, though I think the West Wing podcast thing's been done, but you're so on Twitter whenever you do a West Wing tweet. I mean, that show uh, is is very special to me. Uh, this is a tough one, but I think we always go to in the shadow of two gunmen, either part one or two. And in part one, during the flashback scene, it still gives me chills when I think about it. You've got Josh standing in the back of that VFW or wherever watching then Governor Bartlett give his speech. And you can tell Josh is just not into it. He's like, why did I come up here? Uh, and he's standing there and <laughs> Bartlett says, uh, I voted against the bill because I didn't want to make it harder for people to buy milk. I stopped some money from flowing into your pocket. And if that angers you, if you resent me, I completely respect that. But if you expect anything different from the president of the United States, you should vote for someone else. And in that moment, if you know the scene, Josh looks up and it's like, what did I just hear? And it's, uh, man, it's, it's just the best show. And with some of the best dialogue and, you know, to tie back to what we've been talking about, uh, it's a show that obviously is an idealized form of public service, but you know, that's not bad. It's not bad to have some of that and higher education, having some of that's a really good thing too. to remember that what we do changes lives. And uh, I had a university that gave me a shot to go from an Iraq veteran with no college degree uh, to have a really great career in public service. I'll, I'll always be grateful for that. I think there's a lot of other out, adults out there we could help. Well, I think we could all learn from West Wing, but also, as you probably noticed on Twitter, Ted Lasso, you know, believe in ourselves, believe in each other, trust the captain, trust the crew, be a little optimistic, be like goldfish when we mess up. That's <laughs> right. These are not bad. These are not bad mores to live by. You nah. could do a lot worse. Yeah, damn right. All right, my friend. Well, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much. Don't be a stranger. Hopefully we'll, uh, we'll keep it going. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for giving our podcast with Mike Krause a listen. And be sure to check out the rest of our content around adult learners this week on ednc.org. Have a great week.